This is Understanding Israel-Palestine. I'm Margot Patterson. A year ago this May, Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh was shot and killed by an Israeli bullet while reporting on an Israeli raid in the West Bank. Her family, friends, colleagues, and some members of the U.S. Congress are still seeking accountability for her death. To mark the anniversary of her death, we're airing a conversation broadcast in 2022 with Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. He was Chief of Staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell 20 years ago, and he discusses the special relationship between Israel and the United States, its influence on foreign policy, and why and how it leads U.S. administrations to dodge confronting Israel over human rights abuses, even those against U.S. citizens. First, news. Tens of thousands of Israeli nationalists marched through the Muslim quarter of the old city of Jerusalem on Flag Day, May 18th, some of them assaulting Palestinians, hurling insults at journalists, and chanting racist slogans that included, Death to Arabs and May Your Villages Burn. About 2,500 Israeli police were on hand to protect the marchers on Jerusalem Day, which celebrates Israel's capture of the eastern side of Jerusalem during the Six-Day War in 1967. Thousands of Palestinians in Gaza near the fence with Israel protested the parade in Jerusalem holding Palestinian flags. Israel responded to the protesters with rubber bullets and tear gas. Two New York state legislators have introduced a bill that would prevent not-for-profit entities from funding illegal Jewish settlements in the West Bank in violation of the Geneva Conventions. The Not on Our Dime Ending New York Funding of Israeli Settler Violence Act would establish a civil penalty for nonprofits that send money to settlements. The bill states that between 2017 and 2019 alone, nonprofits in New York State raised over $144 million to fund illegal settler activity. While praised by progressives and human rights organizations, the bill is already drawing a backlash from pro-Israel lawmakers. 25 of them have signed a letter condemning the bill. Now to my 2022 conversation with Lawrence Wilkerson, a 31-year veteran of the U.S. Army who served as Chief of Staff to General Colin Powell when he was Secretary of State from 2001 to 2005. Since the end of his military career, Colonel Wilkerson has been outspoken in his criticism of the Iraq War and other aspects of U.S. policy in the Middle East. Colonel Wilkerson, welcome to Understanding Israel-Palestine. Thank you for having me. I want to start with asking you about the death of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, who was killed by Israeli forces May 11th during an Israeli raid in the West Bank city of Jenin. She wore a bulletproof vest marked press and was standing with a group of other journalists when she was killed by a bullet that hit her just below her helmet. Several independent investigations concluded that Abu Akleh was killed by an Israeli bullet, most likely by an Israeli sniper stationed nearby. A recent article in The Intercept by Alice Sperry makes the point that Abu Akleh was not the first American to be killed by Israeli forces in suspicious circumstances. The July 13th article titled No Path to Justice, Israeli Forces Keep Killing Americans While U.S. Officials Give Them a Pass, examines in particular the death of Rachel Corey, a young American peace activist who was run over by an Israeli soldier driving a bulldozer as she was protesting the demolition of a Palestinian home in Gaza in March 2003. Eyewitnesses at the scene believed her death was not an accident. U.S. officials were dissatisfied with Israel's investigation into the death, but no real action was ever taken 
You were interviewed for that article. It mentions you were supportive and sympathetic to the Corey family as they sought answers to why and how she had been killed, as was Anthony Blinken, now Secretary of State, who met many times with the Corey family over the course of many years. This week, the Secretary met with Shireen Abu Akhli's family, who are calling for an independent investigation into her killing and have been disappointed by what they see as a whitewashing of her death by the U.S. government. They believe her death was not accidental, but intentional. I'm wondering if you felt a sense of deja vu reading about Abu Akhle's death and the Israeli and U.S. responses to it. Do you think there may be more accountability for her death than there was for Rachel Corey's? I found it hard to believe, given my experience. And my experience goes all the way back, uh, at least archival-wise, to the Liberty, the USS Liberty, which the Israelis attacked without substantial provocation for the damage done. They kill people, they machine gun sailors in the water in the eastern Mediterranean. So the Israelis have been increasingly feeling, I think, that they're immune because of the special relationship from any kind of investigation, certainly prosecution or retribution, for anything they do in the way of, as they put it, protecting their national security. And they that's a wide venue for them. It's almost any action, no matter how dastardly, no matter how criminal with respect to international law, that they can justify in their own minds. And their own minds generally is someone like Bibi Netanyahu protects Israeli national security. It's an unconscionable situation as far as I'm concerned. I've been close to it for a long time. I was attendant to the Assistant Secretary for Political Military Affairs morning meetings in which from 2002 to, well, actually from 2001 to about 2003, in which uh, repeatedly incidents would occur that would be reported by cable and otherwise, where the Israelis had used foreign military sales equipment, which is a violation of U.S. domestic law, to kill people that uh, the circumstances of death were outside the U.S. acceptability range. What I mean by that, I mean Apache helicopters that fired Hellfire missiles into hotel rooms and kill women, children, and an occasional Palestinian, quote, terrorist, unquote. So the Israelis have been getting away with this for a long, long time. I don't see that getting away with it as a matter of course and frequently and repeatedly breeds any kind of desire to stop. As a matter of fact, it enhances their desire to continue as usual. So I don't see any recompense or any real investigation or any kind of remorse or compensation to the victims occurring ever with an Israeli extrajudicial killing like this. It's a matter of course for them now. When you were in those meetings with the Undersecretary for Political Affairs or in meetings with other Bush administration officials, what did they say when you brought up, as the intercept makes clear that you did bring up, that the Israelis should receive some rebuke? What did they say why they wouldn't do that? Well, let me correct one thing. It was not always I that brought it up. There were other people. The assistant secretary himself at that time, Link Bloomfield, expressed disgust at the violation of U.S. law, at the loss of life, especially the innocent civilian life. But nothing ever happened. I mean, Link could make a recommendation. I could make a recommendation. Let's at least demarche. Demarche is a formal diplomatic protest that you send through diplomatic channels. Let's at least demarche the Israelis. Let, let's send a, a loud and clear protest and a don't do that again sort of message to them. 
We didn't even do that because you just don't do that in this relationship. George Washington said you should never sell your soul to any nation in the world. Never. He was, of course, emphatic at that moment about France because France actually had its emissaries in the United States. It was trying majorly to influence the U.S. government after the revolution and the help it had given us. It had a right, I think it felt, to do that. But it was getting out of hand and Washington was referring to France specifically, but he meant it, I think, generally too. Don't ever sell your soul to another nation. That's what we've done with Israel. One of the other people quoted in the Intercept article was Jamil Dakwar, a Palestinian-American human rights lawyer who's advised Rachel Corey's family. He's quoted as saying, I would not trust the United States with conducting a credible and independent investigation into serious abuses by close U.S. allies such as Israel. The price tag for real accountability is too high. End quote. Could you say what that price tag really is? Well, I'd have to first say that I kind of disagree with that. I understand where he's coming from and I understand the evidence that he bases his comments on. But what the United States does is it reneges, it backs up, it discards, it denies any responsibility to do anything privately, if not publicly. And so its position publicly is, well, the Israelis are going to do it. Well, the Israelis are doing it. Well, the Israeli IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, or the Israeli court system, or the Israeli adjutant general, or the Israeli ambassador, whomever is doing it. We cast it off immediately to Israel. And then basically we support the findings, which we know beforehand are going to be antiseptic and non-responsive really to any kind of real investigation. We know they're going to be false findings and we accede to them and we even affirm them. So it's not like we're going to do something or we're going to investigate. Should we investigate? Should we bring the FBI in? Should we actually put a forensic team on the ground? Should we try to do something? I would almost guarantee you that as in Syria with the chemical weapons business and Bashar al-Assad, we would have the ground so cleansed by the Israelis, or as we say in the military, so preacher packed by the Israelis, that is to say they would corrupt the scene, that either the results would be negative in terms of Israeli responsibility, or they would point the finger at someone else. That's the way we do business these days, especially in this poisonous relationship we have with Israel. I think the two of you are in agreement, though, that the U.S. government can't really be trusted to be. Absolutely. But when he talks about the price tag, what are the consequences that officials fear in speaking honestly about what has happened vis-a-vis a particular crime? There are a lot of price tags and the price tags span the gamut. The price tag could be, for example, if you're a congressman and you say uh, that should not have happened. That was a violation of U.S. law. That was a violation of international or whatever. Look for your position to be uh, usurped quickly. That is to say, APAC will weigh in, put five or six million dollars down on your opponent and your opponent will win. This started with Chuck Percy in my lifetime. I remember Percy being defeated and he was defeated largely because the Israelis didn't like his positions. So those are the kind of punishments that get dealt out. Now, let me hasten to add that Really, with the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement with Iran, APAC took its first resounding defeat. APAC is unquestionably the most influential foreign power in American politics. They should have to register as a foreign power, and they should be a foreign power by the 
clear extent of the law when you talk about their influence on U.S. politics and U.S. decision-making, particularly security decision-making. The defeat over JCPOA, in my mind, at least showed that J, uh, J Street and other organizations that are trying their best to counter APAC's influence are having some success. And what I worry about because of that success, and it's deepening every day, whether you talk about the uh, BDS movement or you talk about young Jewish Americans, more than half of which now do not like Israeli policy and even, even disagree violently with Israeli policy, slowly but surely, it is going to, in the jargon, eat Israel's lunch. That's what worries me. I'm not against a Jewish state, a democracy, whatever winds up being the Jewish entity or the state in the Middle East that we support that was founded in 1948. I'm not against it persevering, existing, and continuing into the future. But they're their own worst enemies right now. They're going to destroy themselves. And this is one way they're destroying themselves. One day we're going to wake up and the bulk of American Jewry Jewish Americans, and the bulk of American citizens in general are going to say, why are we in this relationship? And it's going to end. It's going to end right there. And then this state, which has created a pariah status for itself, like South Africa did with apartheid, and let's just add Israel right now in Jerusalem and the West Bank is an apartheid state, and rapidly approaching that status in Israel proper, it's going to wake up one day and the international community is going to say, you are a pariah. We do not want to have anything to do with you. That's going to be the end of Israel. And I certainly don't want to see that happen. I have lots of Jewish American friends, uh, rabbis and others, and I don't want to see that happen. I, I want to see the Jews have a homeland that they can go to if they want to. But they're going to commit suicide if they continue on this path of we never do any wrong and everyone who accuses us of wrong is an anti-Semite or worse. This is their status today. This is where Bibi Netanyahu and the people around him, the ultra-Orthodox Jews and others, have brought Israel. And it's a very dangerous place. Just a point of clarification for those who might not be familiar, APAC is the acronym for the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, which is a powerhouse lobbying organization for Israel. One question going back to that price tag, I understand what politicians have to fear from the pro-Israel lobby, but what about civil servants and diplomats? What do they have to fear from the lobby? Well, it's an indirect threat most often, but it is a threat and it is to mount campaign, depending on how dangerous you are. If, if you're just, you know, an insignificant bureaucrat, or I don't mean that derisively, but I mean, if you're just a member of the civil service and you have positions that they think are anti-Israel, they're not going to bother you too much. But if, if you are someone in the hierarchy of power, if you are someone who influences decision makers, they're going to come after you and they're going to start a campaign. And the campaign is going to be everything from sort of covert press campaign to demean you, to diminish your status, and even to possibly get you in, the, in trouble with your own government. Using the Espionage Act, using any manner of methods that have been developed. It's kind of like this. You know, we have a covert operation division in the CIA. That's the best way to put it. And what they do is they lie, cheat, and steal for America. And any one of the operatives there will tell you that that's their mission. And any one of them will also tell you that anything goes in that game. Anything. If we have to kill you, if we have to cut your arm off, if we have to, we have to knock your eyes out, if we have to kill your family, that's what we're going to do. Because that's our purpose in life. And when we do that, we're authorized by the highest authority in the United States, the president, by a finding to do that. Well, the Israelis kind of operate on that basis 24-7. If it is deemed to be a threat to the Israeli state and to national security, then they're going to put that covert apparatus in 
motion to take care of you. It may be just defeating you in your run for office. It may be in uh, demeaning your personality and your character. It may be bringing you into some situation where you're accused of violating the Espionage Act, which is a piece of legislation that ought to be gotten rid of yesterday. It's a junky piece of legislation that we passed after World War I, but it's becoming increasingly a national security instrument in order to take care of whistleblowers and others. And they'll create that status for you. And they have U.S. allies in the bureaucracy and outside in the civilian world who help them do it. There's a group in Washington right now called the, uh, what is it, the Defense of Democracies, FDD, something like that. Foundation for the Defense of Democracy. Yeah. yeah. What what a title. What a title. They're not defending democracy. They're defending Israel. And, and they make no bones about it in the corridors of power. They are established to defend Israel. They're sort of a, a think tank manifestation of APAC. And I have no doubt that APAC and FDD coordinate their policies. So that's the kind of way they get you. Innuendo, backroom talk, uh, maybe some, if it's really dangerous, they consider it really dangerous to the state of Israel. Then they'll come forward with a, a more public campaign. But it'll always be covert in the sense that you don't know Mossad's involved. You don't know Shin Bet's involved. You don't know the IDF is involved. You don't know, indeed, that the Israeli prime minister is involved, has given the orders to do what is being done. This is the way they operate. It's like a little CIA, but it's a state. If you're just tuning in, this is Understanding Israel-Palestine. I'm Margot Patterson, and I'm speaking to Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who served as Chief of Staff to Colin Powell when Powell was Secretary of State from 2001 to 2005. I was going to ask you if U.S. officials and politicians' fear of the pro-Israel lobby was really warranted or whether it was simply expedient for them to go along with whatever the lobby wants. That's an excellent question, and I think it depends on the individual. I think in some cases it's expedient, uh, expedience that drives them. In other cases, it's money because there is a lot of money involved, just as there's a lot of money involved with the military-industrial complex. You're a senator, you're a congressman, you vote one way, Lockheed Martin puts more money in your political action committee. And now with Citizens United and the disguise of that money all across the spectrum, billions of dollars across the spectrum now flow into elections and nobody knows where it comes from because of that decision. You, you have Israel participating in U.S. elections, but you know, that's nothing new. Russia participated in them. Britain participated in them. Canada participated in them. My Maine friends tell me $200 million flo flowed into Maine this last election cycle, more money that had ever been seen in Maine domestic or external, but this was all external money. And it poured into Maine essentially to defeat one of the senators. And it came from outside. It came from foreign countries and it came from U.S. sources outside Maine. This is what Citizens United has done to our political process. It has allowed all manner of money, billions of dollars, to flow into the process from foreign countries, foreign corporations, and domestic in order to defeat or uh, help candidates win election. We're in a sorry state in our democracy right now, a very sorry state. Israel's just one aspect of that. You state in The Intercept that Colin Powell wanted you to make the death of Rachel Corey a priority, even though it wasn't a priority for the George W. Bush administration. Why do you think he wanted you to do that? 
I think it was primarily because he felt like an injustice had occurred and the injustice was so egregious that there ought to be some action. At a minimum, there should have been a private chastisement of Israel. Now, whether that would have meant going over and meeting with Arik Sharon and reading the Riot Act in his own Oval Office, so to speak, or inviting him to Washington to do that, or some other manner, at a minimum, a diplomatic demarche, as I'd said before, one that probably said something like, we don't believe for a minute that this was an accident. If it was an accident, it was the highest and most egregious form of negligence, and there needs to be some compensation for the family, and you need to admit to an extent that you had some responsibility for this, and so forth. That, at a minimum, I think he thought that might be possible were we to come up with enough facts and enough uh, archival evidence that it could be pursued. But we quickly realized that it wouldn't matter what we came up with. It wouldn't matter how many investigations the Israeli did and our people from the FBI to the State Department pronounced them as farcical. It wouldn't have mattered. It was not going to happen. You were in the State Department working for Colin Powell when the Iraq war was launched. Many Americans are still not sure why Some people have said it was a war for oil. Some people have said that the neocons and the Bush administration pushed for war to protect Israel. Some have said George Bush wanted a quick, easy war to boost his popularity. What's your understanding of what led the United States to go to war with Iraq? I've had 400 plus students on two university campuses, most of them really brilliant young people, men and women, doing case study presentations for me for 16 years. I know more about why the Bush administration went to war in 2003 than probably anyone else in America. And I mean that sincerely. I'm not bragging. I'm paying compliments to all my students. Everything that you mentioned and more, they concluded caused the war with Iraq. And when you think about it, it makes sense because, and I was there and I saw this reflected, I just didn't have the archival evidence to prove it. This was such an inexperienced president that, first of all, his vice president took over with regard to national security. Second, everyone around the president had a reason for wanting to go to war in Iraq, whether it was Paul Wolfowitz, who wanted to open up an oil line from Syria to Haifa in Israel, and the only way he could do it was to take out Saddam Hussein whether it was George W. Bush, who wanted to avenge the alleged attempt by Saddam Hussein to kill his father, or who wanted to get reelected in 2004 and thought a war was the best way to do so, and as it turned out, it was, or whether it was other people in the administration who wanted not oil for American oil companies, but oil to be offered to the world at a consistent and constant price and on a fairly regular basis, which has been U.S. policy for over 50 years. And they saw Saddam Hussein as being an impediment to that. And by the way, let me put a footnote there. In the western desert of Iraq are probably more assets, fossil fuel assets, than Saudi Arabia has today. So that's the potential Iraq has. Now, with climate change and people talking about climate change, finally, and and what fossil fuels are doing to us, that may not be the windfall that it looked like at the time. But Saudi Arabia is going to run out one of these days. And in fact, their oil fields are becoming even more tenuous as I speak because they're caving in on themselves. When you take the oil out of a field, especially a sandy loamy field, then it begins to collapse. And so Iraq looms as a a magnet to oil companies that think that they're going to be doing business 20, 30 years from now. 
all of these things played a role. Israel, Israel played a role for Wolfowitz. It played a very seminal role for the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Douglas Fife, whom I think, I will say this, I think Douglas Fife's loyalties were to Israel, not to the United States of America. And I'll say that in a court of law under oath. So my students have shown me, very, very vividly shown me that there were many, many reasons. And the reason all these reasons could come together and cause a president to make what looks like an idiotic decision in retrospect is because he was so inexperienced. The most dangerous thing to put in the Oval Office is an inexperienced man. George Bush was not dumb. He was not stupid, but he had no experience at all. Zero experience. And so into that lack of experience flowed Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, Colin Powell, my boss, Condi Rice, and a host of others outside the government who molded the president to their own wishes. And as several people said, including Condi at the time, Colin Powell was right when he said, uh, Dick Cheney knows how to get George Bush to pull out his 45 and start shooting and breaking things all over the Oval Office. I don't know how to get him to put the gun back in its holster. That was a fairly apt metaphor for George W. Bush in the first four years. I'm curious, what was your impression of President Barack Obama? He was inexperienced too. Yeah, but Barack Obama had a lot of people around him who were first of a similar mindset to himself. And the one person I would be very careful about saying that, and I would caveat it strongly, was Hillary Clinton, because Hillary Clinton, in my view, is cut from the same mold as Madeleine Albright. She never met a war she didn't want to prosecute. But most of the people around Barack Obama were solid people, experienced people, talented people, and people who understood that even though the president might be inexperienced, he was so in charge of his rhetorical approach to the American people that they'd best not cross him. George W. Bush was not in charge of anything with regard to rhetoric. He stumbled all over the place. Now, one-on-one, I met him in the Oval Office when I became chief of staff, spent 30 minutes with him. One-on-one, he was really capable. But in terms of communicating with the American people, the most powerful tool a president has, he couldn't do it. Barack Obama could in spades. And so people were a little bit leery of crossing him and a little bit leery of giving him bad advice. I I met with Barack Obama in the West Wing uh, in the Roosevelt Room in September of 2015, ostensibly to be thanked, along with General Paul Egan, who's with me, for our help on the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the nuclear agreement with Iran. And the first words out of President Obama's mouth almost knocked me off my chair. I mean, it's what I was teaching. He said, quote, there's a bias in this town toward war, unquote. George W. Bush never, never realized that, never would realize that. Barack Obama had come to that realization. He'd just seen what it did to him in Libya. He regretted, regretted the operation in Libya. He sent Samantha Power to be our ambassador to the United Nations to get her out of his hair because she'd been part of the provocation for that war. I don't think he was happy at all. John Kerry was sitting right beside him. And I I, I kept asking myself as I listened to the president talk, is he talking to me? Is he talking to the general? Is he talking to himself? Is he talking to Secretary Kerry? And I came to the conclusion later, he was talking to all of us. He was talking to Secretary Kerry because Kerry was then making words, saying things about introducing ground forces in Syria. And Obama was having none of it, absolutely none of it. So he was essentially lecturing John Kerry, too, who was sitting right beside him as Secretary of State. I'm not putting ground forces in Syria. Forget it, John. Barack Obama was a lot more astute 
and a lot more attuned to the people around him who did have experience, and they were more attuned to him than George W. Bush. And lastly, and most powerfully, Barack Obama did not have a vice president who wanted to be president and was for the first four years. It's come out recently that even though the United States didn't put ground troops in Syria, Syria was the CIA's most expensive project in years. It seemed to have failed. Tell me anything the CIA has done in the last 20 years that succeeded. When you said the CIA will lie, cheat, and steal for America, does that really end up advancing American interests? Good question. I'm with John Kennedy most of the time when I think about an answer to that question. Right after the Bay of Pigs, he said he wanted to break up the CIA and scatter it to the four winds. I'm not so sure if I weren't king for a day, president, and I had the power, and that's a big, big if, I wouldn't destroy it, get rid of it, deinstitutionalize it, because it really is not an instrument of American values, of American professed customs, honor, dignity, use whatever adjective you want to that is descriptive of what we think we are. And I emphasize that, what we think we are. The CIA is a complete violation of all of that. Lawrence Wilkerson, I want to thank you so much for talking to us today. Surely. Take care. You've been listening to Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, a career military officer who served in the State Department as Chief of Staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell and now teaches at the College of William and Mary. Join us again next week for another episode of Understanding Israel-Palestine.